This is the Gender Card Podcast from Griffith University's Gender Equality Research Network. I'm Nance Haxton, and together we will speak to the vanguard of remarkable researchers breaking down the issues of gender equality, women's leadership and gender inclusivity in all realms of life. On the Gender Card, we delve into the contested territory that overlaps consent and sport. Griffith University's Dr Indigo Willing is leading the research project called Red Flags, Banter and Blurred Lines, exploring consent in sport. She's working alongside Dr Adele Pavlidis, going where many have feared to tread, asking male sports leaders about respectful relationships, violence against women and consent. With Dr Willing's background as a skateboarding and masculinities expert, combined with Dr Pavlidis's expertise as a roller derby and women in sports scholar, both sociologists hope to reveal why cultures of exclusion and harm persist in sport, despite many official programs especially designed to tackle the problem. And as they reveal in this interview, issues of power masked by banter on the sporting field are a central aspect of this dilemma. Thank you, Adele, Indigo, welcome, and thank you for joining us on the Gender Card. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Can you tell us a bit about the wonderful research that you're doing and how that started? So at the moment, we are doing some really exciting research on men in sport, so men leaders, and asking them questions about inclusion, diversity and consent and respectful relationships. And it is part of the Gender Equity Network. We've got some seed funding, which is amazing to have money to support us to looking at these kinds of really tricky, difficult topics in sport, which are really necessary, but don't always get the support. So it is just amazing when we look at the trickier sides of gender that uh, Griffith University and groups like Gern come and support us. So we won the C grant with myself and Dr. Adele Pavlidis as well. And we're also working with Professor Molly Drigovich over at the CCJ School and also with Dr. Justine Hotton. So it's a combination of sociologists, criminologists, and as you'll probably soon find out, Adele and I also have some <laughs> interesting sports history and um, our own backgrounds within some of the sports that we're looking at. Fascinating intersections of experience in there, Adele. That was quite deliberate. Yeah, well, that's what's really exciting. Mm. So I've been studying sport now for over 10 years. And, you know, I started off really looking at gender equity issues in sport, sociology of sport more broadly, but really focused on roller derby, which was the topic of my PhD. And then after that, thinking more about other contact sports like AFL, rugby union. But then I met Indigo along the way and she started doing some really great research about skateboarding, but also about masculinity and about violence prevention in sport and consent. And she invited me to be on this project talking to men leaders. And that was just so exciting to open up my research to start to talk to men and thinking about masculinities as well. Why go to men? I mean, both of you, uh, I suppose, particularly Adele, as you were saying, with your roller derby research, was very much focused on the empowerment for women in that space. Yes. Why now go to the men and their point of view? I think it's just so important. We can't have change without everybody getting involved. And I mean, from my own research into roller derby, I don't essentialize gender. It's not like women are all good and men are all bad. 
we need to take a more relational approach and that's why I'm really excited about this project with Indigo because it's an opportunity even just in the interviews to hopefully bring to awareness to some of these male leaders that there are feminists or you know critical sociologists doing work in this area that have something of value to contribute to changing the culture of sport. Was that your motivation as well, Indigo, for for thinking about starting this project? Most of my research has been from the world of skateboarding, which is the opposite of Adele's uh, background in that it's pretty men-dominated and it's full of dudes. And um, (laughs) when you join it, you know, if you're a woman or non-binary or gender diverse, you are a minority in that scene still. So I've always been interested in studying power from above and reversing the gaze in the sense that we normally study people that are oppressed and marginalised and we don't concentrate on actually who has the power and what responsibilities and accountability they can have and how they can be allies and help change. So, yeah, most of my studies have looked at masculinity and skateboarding, whether it's ageing or whether it's sexual violence and rape culture, and also just, you know, the positive sides of masculinity and how it's not, as Adele is saying, you know, gender isn't, like, fixed. You can have various forms of masculinity. Uh, There's a spectrum, and you can have very sort of, you know, positive alternative forms of masculinity uh, that are performed by all genders. So, yeah, I think that's why I concentrated on men for the study. And I thought if we're looking at sport in particular, even though things like sexual violence and um, sexual harassment aren't only from men, <laughs> uh, all genders can mm-hmm. do this, I thought, well, you know, like it's really interesting to look at, at populations that are probably have the most power in creating policies and change. It sounds like you really complement each other, Adele, with your very feminist-focused research and to go with looking at, at men's attitudes. There's mm. some interesting synergy there, isn't there? What have you found in your preliminary work? Where are you up to now with the study? Adele can speak more on the feminist study side and the lens that we bring, that sort of critical lens to gender that she fabulously brings with many of her theoretical leanings and studies of AFL and other types of sports as well. But for me, this was actually the first time I've looked at sport outside of my own <laughs> interests. At being a skate, I'm a skateboarder, and so I've studied skateboarders and trying to find out well, what can we learn from men leaders in all sports, and is there any sort of commonalities in the performances of masculinity that they have? And so Adele and I went out and interviewed people from various disciplines, everything from rugby, AFL, equestrian sports, rowing. Uh, tennis, cricket, and the action sports like skateboarding. And, you know, we're still going through the findings. It's, it's very fascinating. And what we are finding is that, you know, men do have certain scripts and certain roles that they play, certain expectations on themselves of how to play out the role of a leader. And some of them are, you know, fine, and some of them are very problematic and don't leave much room for critical self-reflection, for sensitivity. And, yeah, I might let Adele sort of talk more about what her learnings bring as well. Well, while Indigo was talking, I was just thinking about the way that some of the men that we spoke to gave us a very commercial response. Like, they were very concerned with protecting their brand their sport, which I do understand to a certain degree because they are big organisations. And as sport organisations in particular, they're very public. Their business, you know, when a player gets, you know, domestic violence charge or when there's an argument in a team, the fans all know, you know, and the fans are the stakeholders. So there is this tendency in sport, it's very opaque and also very transparent. 
So you find that uh, sports are very shut off to, to research, particularly critical research. And so the responses that they gave us were often this, you know, this line of there was one leader and he kept telling us how healthy his organization was. We're very healthy. We're very healthy, he would say. And this was an organization who'd had huge scandals. There was an issue literally at that time of a player in court. But he was telling us how very healthy they were. And then you had other leaders who had maybe retired from sport and were able to tell us a kind of story of what it was like and weren't afraid to give us that full story. And that was really powerful to hear what it was like, that kind of undercover story of trips overseas and the kind of things that went on that were very degrading to women. Mm -hmm. And I think that, yeah, the mix of all these findings will be interesting for us to be able to say something There is this trend towards transparency in leaders, but sport may be one of the last areas to shift. It's called kind of one of the last bastions of male privilege and power because in so many of these organisations, yes, they're hiring more women in leadership and other roles, but often it's a lot of men at the top and protecting their interests it really is one of those last bastions, isn't it? And like you say, it's, it is big business. There's so much money in there. Is that part of the problem in really breaking down some of these stereotypes, the, the, the treatment that women have received over decades? I suspect that some of it is actually that commercial side that Adele rightfully points to. That's a really important thing for us all to remember. But some of the sports we looked at don't actually rely so much on big money. They're more grassroots as well, which is why I think our research is really important coming at different angles and different disciplines, so from skateboarding all the way up to rugby league, which we know relies on a lot of sponsorship, to try and see what are some of the patterns that are problematic with men leadership as well and some of the ones that are, are working. And when I mentioned before masculinity and that any gender can perform that, that includes women in leadership as well that are like the lone wolves or they're the only woman on the board or you know there's only one non-binary person in charge of something and the expectations placed on them to mimic the leadership that's been set before that can be very problematic. It's true. I hadn't thought yeah. of that really, that even though there, there have been some breakthroughs, there's yeah. still those structural challenges within that. That's such a good point, and I I really want to pick up on what Adele is saying with the structure and how things are running and that things were healthy, and one of the evidence that was given to us (laughs) about why it was healthy was that they had, you know, women on their board, they had women, you know, team members and so on, but just sort of placing a minority within the majority doesn't mean change in itself. We need to look at the culture and uh, what's held up as normative and what's respected and... I should have mentioned before, the project's called Red Flags, Blurred Lines and Banter, Exploring Consent and Men Leaders in Sport. So what we were initially interested in is this idea of, like, you know, what are the red flags that make people make change? Like, when do they know something's gone too far? What are the blurred lines that give them a reason to think that there's some leeway or it's not as bad as it seems or we can't upset things, the apple cut, because it's not bad enough? To the banter, which has been one of the strongest and interesting things that popped up for the men leaders. And Adele and I were finding that people were saying, well, you know, banter is actually very healthy. There's degrees of picking on people and having fun at their expense that are fine. And then there are ones that, you know, they, they would maybe think go too far. So again, we really need to question what's considered healthy, like having fun with your teammates 
and having a bit of a laugh, that's healthy. But it, <laughs> we need to understand what they mean in terms of how far you can have that banter. Uh, for instance, and that can be, you know, jokes about women to pulling your, you know, teammates' pants down or something. Like, it really is uh, quite interesting the degrees of leeway or acceptability that uh, the men leaders were giving some of these things. And what have you found so far? Were the leaders that you've spoken to uh, aware of some of these aspects or what did what did they reveal, Adele? <laughs> They were performing their leadership in a particular way, so they were only saying so much. So when we asked questions about banter, they relaxed a little because all of a sudden they felt they could talk about something safe. And so I found that very interesting because I'm not very good at banter. You know, no one has ever been able to give me a nickname, so there is a challenge. <laughs> and just, I don't know why. Uh, so to me, you know, when people tease each other and give each other a hard time as part of this playfulness... You know, I struggle with the boundaries. It's like, does that person feel hurt? That's mean, isn't it? Like, I can't understand that. And yet they were telling us, even like in very commercial, you know, well, sport is still not for profit, but it does have that commercial element. So they were telling us that, oh, yeah, it's just, you know, in the office, the women do it, the men do it. It's a big particularly for the men it's a big part of bonding with your colleagues so it's not just on the field no not a training no locker room no plenty of time Mm. for the banter yeah it's it's in the office as well and the role of that and what happens if someone says something hurtful like I do think that sexual violence is, you know, the pointy end, but there are issues of boundary violations that happen way up the other end, whether it's standing too close, touching, saying something, uh, you know, telling someone what to do, all of these things. Like, it's a, it's a continuum. So where does banter fit along that line and how do the men understand that? Like I said, they thought it was completely, like, there was nothing to be afraid of to be talking about it. It was just innocent things. But the whole thing of banter is that you're poking fun at somebody. Interesting intersection there for you too, Indigo, coming from your background of five years or so of research into that skateboarding community. I imagine where that banter is massive and quite often would veer into unhealthy territory when there's people on the fringes perhaps such as yourself who are trying to come in on this ground. I guess the interesting thing about banter in a men-dominated, subcultural kind of lifestyle sport is that there's no formal structures to discipline you if you have done something that is not agreeable in the past. Typically, you'd have a skate park. Somebody might call somebody a homophobic slur as a joke or, you know, to make them do a trick and be more of the man or whatever. And it would really rely on the community to call that out and correct that. And increasingly, what is really promising is with skateboarding, uh, there's been a real increase in women and non-binary skaters and trans skaters saying that this is you know, highly inappropriate stuff to be doing at a skate park and calling on the men, the popular men in skateboarding to do something and be allies. And so positively, you have people like Tony Hawk, who's one of the most famous skateboarders in the world and earns about $470 million a year just on video, his video game alone, <laughs> saying, OK, look, in the past I've called this trick a homophobic name or I've used disability language incorrectly or, you know, this has been very sexist and I'm going to change now. So it takes just one influential person to start making an impact. As they're going towards the Olympics with skateboarding and they did very well in the Tokyo Games that there's no reason that they shouldn't be included in the future... This is where they're going to have to think about how to change that community spirit of calling people in 
to actually having policies and being able to say, look, you know, not only can't you do this as a human being, but as professionals, there are obligations for you not to harm your teammates and, you you know, you've got people looking up to you. So I think with skateboarding, we're going to see some really interesting community responses that don't rely on the structures that haven't worked so far. And then we're going to see some really interesting adaptations within what exists within, say, AFL and lessons that they can learn from maybe from swimming or rugby. I mean, maybe not, but, you know, definitely they've had to do the work in these mainstream sports areas before. So, yeah, it's going to be an interesting conversation between the alternative sports and the mainstream sports. It takes a pretty gutsy person to stand up in the midst of that, though, doesn't it, to say, oh, I used to do this, but actually that's not, that's not <laughs> cool anymore. <laughs> I'm going to yeah. lead the way in changing that. Yeah, that's, again, something I think that is really interesting in the research that Adele and I have been doing is that not only are we interviewing people that are trying to save face for their organisation in a professional capacity, and then they have the pressure of also being what would be called a good bloke or one of the boys or, you know, don't don't betray the guys, it's just guy talk. Or not too PC and yeah, all yeah. that stuff. <laughs> that's yep. right. Mm-hmm. So, again, this whole way that you perform gender also means that you actually police fellow men in not protecting other men, which is something that's going to be really interesting to keep looking for patterns in that. Mm. But it, it seems to be that the men leaders that we're talking to have an awareness that there is a limit to banter, but also they can see a positive role for it and maybe there's lessons we can learn from that teasing and the humour. Maybe it's a particularly Australian cultural thing to look at and how it might be a useful icebreaker in some ways but also really because it's so precious to them and the men really love it also how to talk through that more thoroughly and say actually when you do the banter yes it has a point with good friends or this but it can actually be really harmful let's rethink banter again you're listening to the gender card podcast produced by the griffith university gender equality research network Follow, subscribe or download this podcast from any of the major podcast providers such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify or SoundCloud. Well, when you think of sports such as uh, I think of cricket and what a central part banter is, I mean, we could call sledging part of banter, couldn't we, Adele, I suppose, really? Like, where does where does that end and where does that veer into being inappropriate? And, and it can be used, unfortunately, as a tool to unsettle them, of course, to mm. have a sporting advantage. Yes, that's right. Just a couple of weeks ago on the hockey field, I was refusing to make eye contact with the other team because I knew they were going to try and put me off. So, I mean, I'm just sitting here thinking about sometimes it's more insidious when it seems innocent. And, you know, cricket is one great example, you know, the gentleman's game. And then when you kind of start to hear stories about what goes on off the field and in other ways, it's like that's not reflected it's used as a mask in some ways so I mean it's it's going to be a challenge it's it's difficult and you know we're not going to have all the answers but yeah it's just been really great to have those have those talks and even yeah I think just by both of us going to the interviews and being there it you know cracks open a little bit of like okay I need to maybe rethink this a little bit. And I think the title of of your study is just perfect. Red flags, blurred lines. This is just one big blurred line, isn't it? Like like you say, a continuum. But trying to get some parameters around that, is that really what you're trying to establish in a way in this study? Or where do you see that going? I think probably from my background in doing research on sexual violence and rape culture, we know 
that it's not reliant on being a man. It's got nothing to do with some sort of biological urge to go out and rape women or anything like that. It's about control and power. And this is where we have to think about consent and just our general cultures in sport as well. Like, if you have power, how are you using it? If you're having a joke with a friend, do they feel empowered to laugh back? Are you kicking up or kicking down or punching up or punching down? And I think this is the sort of language that the blokes and the men can respond to quite well. They understand that. So it's not just understanding the relational side of what's going on and who's getting harmed and who's walking away without being accountable or not even realising that they're creating any problems, but also how to communicate to each other and communicate across genders. Because, you know, we're, we are studying very vastly different sports. Equestrian sports isn't rugby, which isn't skateboarding. So what we want to try and do is find what are the actual issues of power and the way that people are treating each other and then how can we work with people to translate that into something that they can uh, empathise with and practice easily. Is there a link, do you think, between sport and banter? But, I I mean, I just think of domestic violence too Mm. and we've been trying to make (laughs) improvements in in the way that culture responds to this for so many years and seems to be Mm. very much two steps forward, three steps back at times, but maybe is banter a way of looking at it and and what is acceptable language around Mm. these issues? I know in some psychological research they've started to add banter as one of the kind of questions and areas to explore when it comes to violence against women so that's interesting that that was something that we'd already started to kind of think about because of power and control domestic violence you know belittling someone putting them down wearing away at their self-esteem things like that definitely could be be something to explore and and try to tackle you know these things are so big but I think sport is a great a great context to explore this stuff because it's something that people can relate to it's supposed to be good for us so it's it's got that good parallel to relationships like this is something that's held up it's, it's given a lot of money we build stadiums spend billions mega sport events all of these things so there is a responsibility uh, to do something with that good that's been given to it. And it'll be good for you uh, with a criminologist <laughs> element that you mentioned with, with Molly to mm. to bring that in and to yeah find those parallels there as well. Mm. We're very fortunate to have an interdisciplinary team mm. with this and the GERN network really emphasised the fruit that you can have from working from different perspectives. So Molly... Professor Dragovich brings in the domestic violence experience but also we're very fortunate to work with Justine Hotton whose background is looking at same-sex relationships and consent so it's important as we again again talk about men in sport this is just one case study of power and what consent means and boundaries and we're obviously looking at a particular population that has a lot of power but it's not something that is exclusive to men and Justine's perspectives really helps us even that out the different types of backgrounds we can look at things like uh, sex crimes, sexual harassment and sexual violence is only going to really help a project like this in sport because, as Adele said, it's massive. In a, this is Australia where everybody likes to support sport and bringing an academic research side to the policy is really important and now's a really good time to do it. I do think of Adam Goods at this point and this is such vital research that you're doing. I mean, only five or seven years ago, whenever that was, some people would have considered that banter what he endured Mm -hmm. on the sporting field. Yeah, definitely. 
you know, and how brave he was to call it out for what it was. And hopefully things can continue to improve. You see sport organisations trying to come out more strongly, but that's kind of a top-down approach. They need to be working, I think, at all levels from grassroots, you know, just for just playing it shouldn't be about you're not allowed to say that but about learning about colonization or learning about racism throughout sport because sport's been so tied up with racism with notions of superiority of particular races or all of these things are tied up in sport uh, as well as sexism and and gender issues so I think there's a lot of opportunities for sport to be a place to learn because it's about bodies it's about moving bodies it's about working together you know and there can be good I mean I wouldn't study sport if I didn't think there was some good in it this is where sporting organizations I suppose can lead the way I mean so much of the the banter the sledging directed at Adam came from the audience Mm. from the spectators Mm. yeah is that also part of this that it's not just going to have an influence on the way the team of that sport works but also hopefully on the people watching I think it's really important to get the conversations in the spotlight continued and uh, particularly the work from there's been some really great indigenous writers that have written about Adam Goods and the AFL right up to you know contemporary issues that they're facing we can really look at the um, public work of journalists like Shelley Ware. I find looking at programs like Indigenous X and their blogs and their writings really highlights the Indigenous perspective on what lessons non-Indigenous people can learn about our, our racisms and the way that we fit in with you know reproducing colonial structures and racism through sport, through who we praise, who we punish in terms of the racism as it relates to First Nations people. So, yeah, it's going to be really interesting what non-Indigenous people like Adele and I can really learn from and be shaped by. I haven't done a lot of work around racism in sport. I have done some on whiteness. Um, But, you know, I do think that there is this idea that you can't just, yeah, hire someone to fix it because, again, that's just getting the issue and putting it somewhere else. I mean, we do see that even in domestic violence in rugby league. It's become sadly almost a cliche for that game. I mean, they brought in very esteemed women to try and bring in changes and cultural training, but uh, it does seem to persist. Something that I think is really, I don't know, validates, but it certainly supports why we should be doing the research that we're doing with men in sport is that there's some wonderful work out there by Catherine Lumley from Macquarie Uni of which you know we owe debt to in continuing looking at masculinity and things like sexual violence and um, sexual harassment in sport. But something really interesting that one of the interviewees that we spoke to said, you know, that you can send a thousand women academics in to give training on safety and respect. It's not going to have much effect on a 20-year-old footballer who is on tour. He's got a lot of women showing him a lot of attention. He's plied with alcohol. What you really need to do is actually have scenarios and talk through the worst-case scenarios of what you should do in these situations. And from what we understood from this particular informant, he's seen it all. It was quite distressing to listen to some of the stories of the the men in cricket on tour. It was very disturbing. But what he was saying is that actually, yes, we, we play a role, like academics like Abdel and myself in this project, at a certain level, but also that can complement looking at how the men practice consent 
and what scenarios they have to go through for it really to come home to them what they need to do, what's acceptable and where they're really crossing the line completely and also what the bystanders should do as well. And on the positive side of things, yeah. I remember in our background talking to go, you mentioned that it's actually a really exciting time to be looking at this because of the recent progress that you've seen and that's both yeah. in your skateboarding experience with We Skate Queensland, uh, but also on a broader level with Me Too, with Black Lives Matter. There there does seem to be a bit of a a wave happening of change, doesn't there? Yeah, now is a really great time to help anybody that is interested in raising the issue of consent in sport and respect. We have seen some amazing changes, even in just a few years. So one of the community projects that I do is called Consent is Rad, as in, you know, radical, (laughs) R-A-D. Consent is rad. We're just trying to make it sound like, you know, skateboarder language. So we're talking about how to translate what we do. If it said, you know, this is the don't rape campaign, nobody would pay attention. (laughs) But it's like, you know, consent is rad. And we've got like a skateboarder as our logo. And initially we just had sort of well-known skateboarders holding up signs saying consent is rad. And people paid attention because, like, oh, I like that skateboarder. Why are they talking about that? To, you know, increasingly like campaigns with um, videos and education and so on. But in the very short time we started, we've gone from being something like, well, why would anyone talk about that, to being linked to things like Thrasher magazine, which is like followed by 24 million people on social media. It's the biggest institution in terms of um, publications in skateboarding. Allies can make such a huge difference, and this is why the Men in Sport project that I'm doing with Adele as well has just been a natural step forward for the research I do on skateboarding and what we're seeing in skateboarding and what we can see in all the sports, hopefully. Do you feel that movement to Adele, you've been researching in sport for a long time, is there a movement for change? Do you have some hope there? I always have hope. I'm a very hopeful person. There's been this real surge of energy. Now we're looking at you know pay equity and really trying to, to tackle all aspects, I think. Yeah, you know, just hoping that people can start to to see that you know sport is not is not separate to society and that there is social cultural aspects that really need to be addressed and that we do need various perspectives who knows with the olympics coming up in brisbane of course what exciting uh, opportunities that might open up as well particularly with your research in the background i'm very excited for for what you're finding and i really appreciate you both coming in to speak to us on the gender card i guess last thing i'd like to mention is if anyone wants to get involved with skateboarding or any sport know that there's been a massive amount of work to actually include be more inclusive and get things on the ground and one of the great things about the skateboarding events that we have held is that Griffith University has come along and had a drop-in and chat session. So anyone that's actually even interested in what researchers are doing with sport and how it might benefit uh, something that they're interested in or address a need that they have, this is something that Griffith University has fully backed. It's so fantastic. And it's also just saying, you know, if you want to study skateboarding or roller derby or any kind of sport and study, you can do that. You don't have to be live separate worlds. So I think Griffith University has done a really great job in supporting community engagement, career paths, and as well as that really exciting research. So thank you. No, I'm just really happy to be here and especially to be with Indigo on this project that she's leading and for the possibility of making a contribution. Adele Pavlidis, 
Indigo Willing, thank you so much for joining us on the Gender Card. Thanks, Nance. Thank you, Nance. Thanks to Dr Indigo Willing and Dr Adele Pavlidis for exploring the overlapping issues of consent and sport on this episode of The Gender Card. And that's all for this episode of The Gender Card. This podcast was produced by the Gender Equality Research Network by Nance Haxton with production assistance from Michael Adams. Stay up to date with this Griffith University podcast on all the major podcast providers, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify and SoundCloud. Speak to you again soon.